0: Thank you, Shelley, for reading. And good morning, everyone. If you don't know me, my name's Matt, and I'm one of the ministers here at Helensburg and Stanwell Park Anglican Church. Today, as you will notice, we are continuing in the series that we have called the Messianic Psalms. If you would like to ask any questions, you can do so using slido.com with the hashtag HBSP. Well, we've all seen it up and down the east coast of Australia at the moment there is a massive cleanup effort in progress due to all the rain. In Psalm 40, David uses the phrase, the miry bog. What a great phrase to describe what we've actually seen. I wonder what your backyard looks like at the moment. Is it a miry bog? I know this week we've had a few miry bogs around the church. There was one in the front right here. There's still one in the backyard preventing the kids from actually playing there. There are many miry bogs around at the moment. And if there is one thing that you do not want to get stuck in, it is a miry bog. Now, I don't know if you've ever played this game. It's a kid's game called Stuck in the Mud. It's a game of tag where you run around, there's somebody who's it, and they tag people. And when you get tagged, you actually have to stop. You spread your legs, and you are considered stuck in the mud. And the only way to get out of the mud To get out of being stuck is for another person who's playing to actually crawl under your legs and then you are free and the whole point of the game is that you are stuck in the mud you are helpless and you cannot move until somebody comes and rescues you when my brother and i both had a four-wheel drive down in melbourne we used to take them out and try and get stuck in the mud. We used to say to ourselves, it's not been a good day four-wheel driving until one of our four-wheel drives is completely stuck and it takes the other person to pull them out, either to winch them out or tow them out. At times in our life, in our many adventures here, most of us at one point or another would know what it feels like to be stuck and to not be able to get out without the help of somebody else. This is how David describes his situation. And he actually describes it like this on more than one occasion. He gets stuck in the mud on more than one occasion. David explains how he was in the miry bog. And then he declares how God rescues him from the miry bog just to find himself back in it again. And at that time, he must remember that God rescued him once, and so he will do it again. David waits patiently for God. He trusts in God. He praises God for rescuing him, and he explains to us the response that we must have to God who has also rescued us. Our response must be a delight to do his will, a desire to do his will, an obedience that is from the heart of someone who owes their entire life to the one who has rescued him. Let's pray as we look at Psalm 40. Heavenly Father, help us this morning as we look at your word, that you might shape and mold us to be more like Jesus, who has rescued us from The pit of despair. In your name we pray. Amen. Psalm 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. This here is a personal testimony from King David. And it's a testimony of a time in the past when he had to wait patiently for the Lord. The psalm describes how he waited in a pit of destruction in the miry bog. And David explains how, having cried out to the Lord, the Lord heard his cry, came to his rescue, pulled him out of the miry bog, and set his feet on a rock. It is interesting to me that David doesn't go into any more detail about what he calls this pit of destruction, this miry bog. And as we look back at David's life, we realize that it could be talking about a lot of different struggles that David had. It could be talking about sickness. It could be talking about struggles he faced in his sinfulness. It could be his struggles as the king dealing with the nations around him, or even as the king dealing with the nation of Israel themselves. We actually don't know what the miry bog is, because he doesn't tell us. And what's interesting and what the most important part of this is, is that he doesn't tell us the specific struggle. It means that it doesn't actually matter. It's not important. Oftentimes when we read about it specific struggles. For example, when somebody gets sick, we think to ourselves, we haven't been that sick. It doesn't apply to me, or I don't actually know how to apply it to my life. We dismiss it by thinking, I haven't gone through this particular situation, that particular struggle, so it doesn't apply to me. But here in this passage, David does not give us that option. We cannot just take this passage and say that it does not apply to our life. What David experiences here, perpetually finding himself in the mud and needing God's help, is the experience of every Christian. David goes through difficult times over and over again, and so do we. And he cries out to God that he would save him over and over again. This is the experience of the Christian life. And how David responds should be how we respond. Because we go through times where we end up in the miry bog and we wait on the Lord. We cry out to him and in due course he hears us and rescues us. He plants our feet on a rock. And if you don't understand the Christian life in these terms, well, you fall into two categories. The first one is you're either proud and arrogant, thinking it's your own efforts that have pulled you out of the miry bog, or you're still stuck in the miry bog. You're blind to the fact that God is ready and waiting to pull you out. So David praises God for what he has done in verse 3. He put a new song in my mouth, a new song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell them that yet they are more than can be told. So David, after his rescue, declares what the Lord has done. As he declares what the Lord has done, others put their trust in the Lord. That's what it says in verse 3. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Don't you find that fascinating? David, being drawn out of a bog, praises God, gives glory to God, and people around him see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. What an incredible example of proclaiming God's power in a time of weakness. An example of what we've actually been looking at that Steve's been talking to us about in 2 Corinthians, of how showing our weakness to others and giving the glory to God for rescuing us will result in them coming and trusting in God. And for me, I love it when this happens, when an example of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians is found in the way that David lives in the Old Testament. It really excites me, and hopefully I'm not alone in this. Hopefully it excites you to see David's testimony of God's faithfulness as an example of what Paul is teaching us in 2 Corinthians. When we declare our weaknesses and our dependency on God, God uses that, and he uses it to bring others to trust in him. I would like us to reflect on this for a few more minutes. When we are out of the bog, when we've come out of the bog, we need to remember where we have been, that is, that we were in a bog. We need to remember what it felt like in the bog and how we felt hopeless. We need to remember that it was God who pulled us out and who rescued us. Because David's experience assures us that one day, We will actually be back in the bog again. David ends up back in the bog. And so will we. So when we're not in the bog, we need to remember who rescued us. We need to embed it into our conscience. We need to prepare for what is to come. We need to meditate on God's word. We need to proclaim his goodness and his wondrous deeds. And we need to talk about them. And talk about how God has actually rescued us from the miry bog. So that when we end up back in the bog, by God's grace, we may not end up in the same mess that we were in before. We might not be so proud and arrogant to believe that we can get ourselves out. Or forget that God is at work in our life and be stuck there without any hope. We all go through times of illness, sorrow, death of loved ones, possibly opposition to our ministries. We feel that things are closing down around us. We feel as though our options are few and far between. We feel as though there's no way out. But when we do actually come out of the bog, when we see more clearly, we can see that God has had a hand in it all. And we can declare God's goodness to those around us. You may not be able to see His protection while you're in it. After all, you are in a bog. But as you come out the other side, you can see that He has been there through it all. He is the one who has not act, not only sustained you through it but he has rescued you out of that and set your feet on a rock. And so you can proclaim that God does not change. God is sovereign and God is good. God is powerful and he has demonstrated it many times in our lives. I know this to be true. Because I've seen it, and I've heard about it from many of you here in church today. So how do we actually respond? How do we respond to God's gracious act in rescuing us from the pit of destruction? David continues in verse 6. He says, in sacrifice and offering you have not delighted. But you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. David explains that bringing offerings is not the right response, it is an inadequate way to try and please God. Today, we don't offer sacrifices to God in the form of burnt offerings and sin offerings. What we do, however, is serve God in our thoughts and in our actions. David is not saying the burnt offerings that the Israelites provided were wrong. But he is saying that the reason that we do it is more important than the act itself. Our heart and attitude are what God cares about. We can be involved in good things and do them for the wrong reasons. Maybe we do it because it makes us look good. Maybe we do it because it makes us feel good. Or maybe we are caught up in the notion that somehow what we do can repay God for what he has done for us. Do we do it simply because we are told to do it? This psalm here teaches us that our obedience in serving God is born from a grateful heart and in love and obedience for the one who saved us. Now, David here in this passage actually recalls a pivotal part in Israel's history. And it's important for us to understand where he gets verse 6 and 7 from. And this example is found in 1 Samuel 15. So we're going to all flip back to 1 Samuel 15 to look at why the Lord rejects Saul after he has been anointed king over Israel. So please turn with me to 1 Samuel 15. We're going to start with verse 1 at the beginning of the chapter. 1 Samuel 15, verse 1 says, And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on their way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And so Saul goes and defeats the the Amalekites. But look at what he does in verse 7. Read with me verse 7. It says, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of all the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and they would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they destroyed to destruction. And then skip with me down to what it says in verse 13. It says, And Samuel came to Saul and said to Saul, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandments of the Lord. And Samuel says to him, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the ox.'" Why? To sacrifice to the Lord your God. Saul does not listen to the word of the Lord. He does not devote to destruction everything. He spares all the good, possibly to sacrifice them to God. And this does not please God. God. But Saul actually doesn't see the problem. And he says in verse 20, read with me verse 20. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on a mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil the sheep and the oxen and the best of all the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And then we get to the heart of the problem. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For the rebellion is the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And that's exactly what happened. Saul is rejected as being king and David is anointed as the king of Israel. And back in Psalm 40, if you flip back to me, David here explains. More than that, he actually warns us about how our attempts to make offerings that are pleasing to God will never measure up. They are always inadequate. The only adequate response to God after he has pulled us out of the miry bog is to offer ourselves completely in obedience to his word, to delight to do his will, and to personally proclaim to those around us how God has rescued us. And in verses 9 and 10, David does just that. He proclaims what God has done for him. He says, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness, from the generation from the great congregation. And here we have it his personal testimony. Personal testimonies are powerful. He proclaims what God has done for him. Once he was in a bog, and now he is on a rock. And it is all because God rescued him. This has been a challenge to me, and I hope. It is a challenge for all of us today. When we leave here today, David encourages us to speak of God's faithfulness and salvation to those around us while you can, because one day you'll probably be back in another bog. And that is exactly what happens next for David. So read with me here how David finds himself back in another bog, starting from verse 11. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. And then look at verse 12. He says, For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame who disappoint altogether, who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. David finds himself back in another bog. A lot of people that are struggling with the floods at the moment up and down the East Coast, have actually told their story about how they've been in previous floods. Just because you've been through one bog, it does not mean that you're not going to go through another bog. Just because you struggle with having children, it doesn't mean that you're not gonna lose an eye in a workplace accident. And just because you lose an eye in a workplace accident, it doesn't mean that you're not going to get cancer or to lose those who are closest to you or something else until you die. I know that sounds a bit morbid, but the truth of the matter is that sin has marred this world. Although the Lord has helped us out of one miry bog, It doesn't mean that we won't be back in another bog. My father-in-law's favorite saying is, things are never so bad that they can't get worse. (laughs) But we must remember that God sees and knows and promises to go with us and before us through it all. He promises that he will rescue us from the miry bog. So many of us, rightly so, cry out, come, Lord Jesus, come, because we recognize this truth. David here, he talks about shame. He talks about disappointment. He talks about becoming close to death, about others delighting in his hurt. He explains that his iniquities are more than the hairs on his head. He explains that they are more than he can bear. But David unashamedly talks about his iniquities. We do not need to be ashamed of our weaknesses. Being shamed about our past iniquities means that we actually just don't talk about them. And because we don't talk about them, we don't talk about how God has rescued us up from them. This shame prevents us from giving God the glory and helping others to come to trust in him. David, at the end of this psalm, reminds himself, and he also reminds all of us in verse 17. He says, As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. And he gives us reason once again for us to rejoice and be glad, saying continually what it says at the end of verse 16, Great is the Lord. Now, as we get to this end of the psalm, you might be wondering to yourself, why is this psalm considered a messianic psalm? That's what we're preaching about, if you're wondering. Now, if you can remember with me from last week, last week, one of the reasons psalms are messianic is because the inspired New Testament writers use these psalms and say they're actually talking about Jesus. So we're now going to flip to Hebrews chapter 10, where we actually see this happening. Please flip, flip with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Here in Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews here points out by referring to Psalm 40 that God has a better plan and that the sacrifices and the offerings of animals were not God's ultimate way of dealing with sin. Read with me chapter 10, Hebrews 10 verse 1. What this is saying is that the Old Testament law was a shadow of what is to come. The law said that you had to continually make sacrifices. And the very fact that you had to continually make these sacrifices meant that they were ineffective in dealing with sin. And so read with me on. It says, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So instead of dealing with sin, they only served as a reminder of sin. The blood of the bulls and the goats did not take away sin. And verse 5 says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and this is where we see Psalm 40 being quoted. Hebrews here has put all the pieces together for us. These offerings were just a shadow. They were ineffective in taking away sin. God's will was therefore to be first an Old Testament history which shadows the good things that are come, have come through Jesus Christ. And then The writer goes a step further in verse 11. Read with me verse 11. It says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he is perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified notice the contrast between the priest and jesus the repeated offering and the one offering for all time the priest standing daily and jesus who sat down at the right hand of god his offering of himself was perfectly complete and look at me again, the, uh, the encouragement found in verse 14. It says, For a sing- by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, let me be clear this does not say that we are perfect. But as the imperfect sinners that we are, we can have assurance that we will stand perfected and complete in the eyes of our Heavenly Father. Because of what Jesus has done, taking our place and being obedient to the Father, even through death on the cross. So where our obedience and what we struggle with, where our obedience to do his will fails, his obedience prevails. He rescues us up out of the miry bog and sets our feet on the rock. Turn with me to Philippians two eight, which reminds us of this fact when it describes Jesus and what he has done. Philippians verse, uh, chapter two verse eight. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, in a few minutes, we're going to stand and sing the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. We will sing These words in the hymn, which echo Psalm 40. I want to read them to you. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. You might like to take a few minutes to reflect on what's being said. You may also like to ask a question using slido.com.